I invite you to turn with me to this morning's text found in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May I insert a parenthesis before I begin the message? I neglected again to say that after this service, we have a reception for visitors who can spare an extra five minutes before you leave. You go through those double doors and you turn left into the overflow room. We'd love to be able to meet you personally and shake your hand. And as long as I'm sticking in parentheses here, you know, this is a pretty full service and a lot of people don't like to sit close to each other. We have room in the other two services at 945 and 815. So if any of you is open to uh, new habits of church attendance, why don't you consider switching over to an earlier time? Close parenthesis. I've heard the saying, I suppose for 25 years, in fact, I heard it first in high school, I remember. It was said in connection to marriage at the first time I heard it, and has been usually since. If two people agree about everything, one of them is unnecessary. And... uh I remember thinking at the time, even as a teenager, that's clever, but it's wrong. Because usually it's accompanied with the either explicit or implicit statement, and if they did think the same about everything, it would be boring. But if that's true, if two persons agreeing about everything makes one of them unnecessary and makes the fellowship boring, then God the Son is unnecessary to God the Father, and the fellowship of the Trinity is boring. And some of the deepest moments of fellowship among the deepest like-minded partners that I have is boring, and we're unnecessary to each other. It's just not true. It doesn't accord with Scripture. It doesn't accord with experience. For example, in Scripture, Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down upon the beard, upon the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, this psalmist, when he wrote that, was saying... Deep harmony, unity, like-mindedness is a precious thing 
It's precious beyond description. It tastes sweet like honey. It's alive and beautiful like oil and dew upon the mountains. And I know from experience, aside from Scripture, that the sweetest and deepest moments of fellowship in my life have been the hours of relishing some great dream together with comrades who agree deeply about God and man. And the wider and the deeper the agreements, the deeper and the broader and the higher the delights of those moments. It isn't true. It isn't biblical. It doesn't accord with experience. And we need to think hard today, this morning and tonight, about Christian unity. I have three questions to ask this text that David just read. One, what is the nature of the disunity that Paul was encountering in Corinth? Number two, how did he undermine the disunity? That is, how did he attack and shatter the foundation of the disunity? And the third question What then is the resulting unity that he attempts to put in its place on a new foundation? Now, we don't have time for point three this morning. So point three will shift into the evening message and we'll move right from point three, the nature of the unity, into verses 18 to 25 tonight. If you would care to follow it on through to its completion. Question number one. What is the nature of the disunity that Paul was meeting at Corinth? It's described in verses 11 and 12. Let's read these two verses. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Now, what's the nature of this disunity? Evidently, what was happening is that the church was lining up behind its favorite teacher. And isolating and elevating the distinctives of that teacher and boasting in them as better. And deriving some kind of uh, substitutionary pleasure for having been in the train of this noteworthy teacher. Pride, Paul is going to make plain in just a moment, is the root of this disunity that boasts in one teacher over another. But now before I give you the evidence from that, from the text, I want to show you how relevant this issue is today by just pointing out two ways that today the same boasting and pride endangers the church and our unity. Two expressions of this pride today. Let me describe two. One, there is a broad danger throughout the church, especially in a day where the media present uh, preachers and many churches are big like this one and ten times bigger, some of them, and people become uh, notorious or famous, depending on your attitude, and The temptation just pervades Christendom to align yourself with a star in order to get some of his glory. 
Most of us feel like nobodies because we are. When you watch television, it's constantly glamorized how wonderful it is to be in the limelight, to be well known. And you know, as you sit there in your living room, there aren't 500 people who know you, let alone five billion in the world or five million. So you just feel I'm a nobody compared to all these people that people watch on TV or read about or whatever. And inside, many times, the impulse to change that and to satisfy this desire to be somebody is solved by finding a somebody and jumping on their coattails or their bandwagon. And you study all their books, you listen to all their sermons, you get all their tapes, you tune into all their programs, you learn how they gesture, you learn how they talk, you learn everything about them and you begin to assess everything by them. They become a kind of ideal or paradigm or authority for you. And surely, slowly but surely, the other people who aren't on the bandwagon, they're just not quite with it. And you can see so easily how this form of pride begins to deteriorate the fabric of the church, which is unity. And one gets puffed up above another teacher or people aligning themselves with different stars on the Horizon of evangelicalism, for example. That's one form that the pride takes. But be careful now. Because the other side of the coin that looks like the opposite of this is just another expression of the same pride. It goes like this. You hear a radio talk, preacher, and you learn something valuable. And it helps you. It strengthens your faith. And you go to somebody and you start excitedly saying what you learned. And they immediately communicate very clearly, either through their body or their tone of voice or explicitly, uh, I don't have a herd mentality like you seem to. I don't jump on bandwagons. I'm critical. I don't follow every radio preacher who comes along. In other words, the opposite side of this jumping on bandwagons or seeking to share the limelight of some noteworthy person is a constant anti-authoritarianism, suspicion, antagonism toward leadership, cynicism, skepticism that says, I'm not going to be impressed by that Sunday school teacher. I'm not going to be impressed by that pastor. I am, you know, I'm in my little world and I get things straight from God or I make up ideas on my own. Now, both of those are opposites and yet they're exactly the same at root. It's pride, unwillingness to learn on one hand and the craving for attention and praise and notoriety on the other hand. And so I just want to make plain as we get started here that the issue of pride beneath this boasting in teachers at Corinth that is severing and, and, and uh, dismantling the unity at Corinth is prevalent. The danger is, is in every one of us. And we must be alert to it and pay attention now as we focus on the second question, how does Paul attempt to undermine this disunity? How does he attack the foundation of disunity at Corinth. The answer in a nutshell is he does it with truth. He believes what Jesus believed in John 17:17 17, 17, when Jesus prayed to his father, "Father, 
Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Now, what's he saying? He's saying God sanctifies and he uses truth to do it. Now, that's exactly what Paul believes. And therefore, what Paul does in order to sanctify these proud people, that is to humble them and to unify them, is to teach them six truths. Six truths that attack, blast, shatter the foundation of disunity. And I want to give you these six truths very briefly. Number one, it's found in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Now, the answer to that is obviously no. And so the truth, as you state it, not in a question, is Christ is not divided. Now, why is that relevant for the issue of, of disunity? Two, two reasons it's relevant. The first comes by thinking ahead to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So what he's saying is, we are, in a sense, Christ, because we are the physical manifestation of the body of Christ in the world today. Disunity, then, in the body is a contradiction of Christ who is not divided. He is not rent asunder. He is whole. To live uh, in disunity is to contradict who we are as the body of Christ. If the fingers on the right hand begin to boast over the fingers on the left hand and say, we're led by the right wrist, not the left wrist, and boast in this leader over this leader, what becomes of the ability to make snowballs? I tried to make a snowball with one hand the other night. I could get a golf ball size snowball, but when you threw it, it was so light, it wouldn't go on beam. And so I couldn't hit Benjamin. So I took both gloves off and lasted a minute. What becomes of playing the whole piano song? What becomes of applause to the Lord? If the body is rent with one group of fingers boasting in one leader and another group of fingers boasting in another leader, we shatter Christ. He is not divided. That's truth number one. Truth number two comes from the end of chapter three. And I'm going to take them out of order here and jump you way over if you want to go with me. I hope you do. To chapter 3, verse 21, because this truth here is so closely uh, related to what we've seen so far. Let's read the verse and then I'll try to state the truth. Let no one boast of men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, notice a few things. He mentions Paul, Apollos and Cephas. So we know he's got the same the same party spirit in mind here. That's the heads of the parties, even if they didn't want to be heads of the parties. And what is the truth? 
that should shatter boasting in men, that is, boasting in Paul or Paulus or Cephas. The truth is, believers already possess the universe, so why would they want to stake their claim on a little teeny piece of turf and say that we've got Paul or Paulus or Cephas when they have everything? Why would they want to say, Apollos belongs to me and I belong to Apollos when everything belongs to the believer. If the first truth said Christ is not divided, it also meant when you have Christ, you have a whole Christ, right? You should never say, well, uh, she has uh, 80% of Christ and I only have 50% of Christ. Or I have 80% and she only has 50%. You should never say that. Christ is not divided. He has, he is whole. And when you have Christ, you have the whole Christ. Now this, this truth says, when you are Christ's, you have the universe. Do you believe that? I mean, some truths approach unbelievability because of their magnitude. This truth says that Christians inherit the universe. And that makes boasting in a little teeny part of the universe inconsistent. Does a man who owns and runs the city boast in one condominium over another? Does a man who owns the world boast that one farm is bigger than another? He owns them all. We belie the truth that we are heirs of the universe when we need inside to puff ourselves up by staking our claim in the limelight with this leader. That's truth number two. Truth number three is found in verse 13 again of chapter one. It's the sentence or the question. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer to that is no. And so the statement, the truth is Paul was not crucified for you. Christ was crucified for you. Now, this is very tactful. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Tactically. Whose party is he gunning for here? His own. His agenda would have been gravely mistaken had he gone for Apollos first. It would have played right into the hands of the Paul party and said, see, even our teacher can recognize your weaknesses. So he goes right for his own party. And what's his main agenda? To kill himself as a ground for boasting. To destroy Paul as a ground for boasting. And the first way he does it, he does it in two ways. The first way he does it is to say, I wasn't crucified. Now, what does he mean by that? How's that, how's that supposed to affect these people? I think in two ways. First, he's supposed to say, I mean, they're supposed to think something like this. If Christ loved me enough to die for me, he is a treasure that is infinitely valuable. Therefore, when I compare the value of Christ crucified to this little teacher, this little teacher becomes virtually insignificant. 
And all glory and all joy and all boasting go to Christ. And that's what he said in verse 31 at the end of the chapter, isn't it? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, here's the second effect this truth is supposed to have upon us. I think when Paul said, did I get crucified? I think he almost wanted to say, I got crucified for. Like you. And what does that mean? It means I'm hopelessly corrupt. I'm hopelessly a sinner and lost. Without a crucified Son of God, I'm undone. And you will boast in me? Someone so bad it took the death of the Almighty to save me from destruction? You see the point? How can you boast in one who needed to be died for? Let all your boasting go to the one who dies for you and me. We are worms compared to the value of the crucified Christ. That's truth number three. Truth number four comes from the next question. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And the answer to that is no. And so the truth is you were not baptized into my name. You were baptized into Christ's name. Now, what were they boasting in here? I think you can hear some of it. They were boasting like this. Paul was the first one on the scene here. He planted this church. He was the first one to call anybody to faith. He baptized the first converts, and I was one of them. Or my brother, Stephanus, well, he was one of them. And Paul responds by saying, this is a paraphrase of verses 14 following, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans who baptized you. Now, that might sound disrespectful to baptism until you hear him, him ask indirectly, Into whose name were you baptized? What holy name was prayerfully and solemnly pronounced over you in the waters of baptism? I don't care what man stood by you and held you under the water. To whom did you appeal in your clarity of conscience in that act? Paul? Christ. Now, hidden in this is a clear statement about the inconsistency about boasting in baptism. What does baptism symbolize? Our baptism pool is hidden right here behind this. And when I take people under the water like this, and they go under the water, where are they going? They're going to a grave, right? They are dying. And they're rising to newness of life. Life toward God, death toward self and sin. So what is baptism? It's an emblem of death to self. Isn't it an amazing travesty to boast in that which is the death of your ego? And so hidden right here in this, were you baptized into the name of Paul, is a two-pronged correction or demolition of the foundation of disunity. You were baptized into Christ. You were united to Christ. I'm nobody. His name was pronounced over you, not mine. And it meant you died. How can you boast about that by which you died? To self. Truth number five. Found in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel. And not with eloquent wisdom, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, now Apollos is in view and his party. The reason I think the Apollos party is now in view is because in Acts 18.24, this is what we read. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well versed in the scriptures. And in verse 27 of Acts 18, it says, he left Ephesus and went to Achaia, that is to Corinth, and began to water the sea. Now, we don't have to use too much speculation here to know what these two parties were saying. The Paul party was saying, our man was on the scene first. He planted this church. He called the first converts. He baptized the first converts. He's an apostle, and he did signs of an apostle. That's their boast. The Apollos party says, yeah, but have you ever heard Apollos preach? What? Eloquence. And he went to school, got his degree in Alexandria, our leader has a doctrine. And what wisdom rolls off of his golden tongue. And Paul responds to this by saying, it is possible to call so much attention to yourself and to your manner and your demeanor and your education and your skills that you nullify the cross. The cross is a place where you die, not a place where you shine. When a man claims to preach Christ crucified, you better look through the accidents of leadership and see whether he is crucified. By the accidents of leadership, I mean oratorical ability and signs and wonders. Those are the accidents of authenticity, not the heart of the matter. And what we need in America today is a Christendom who can look right through pastors, TV preachers, Radio preachers, beyond the oratorical ability, beyond the claims to do signs and wonders, and see whether they are dead or not. Whether they have died to self and exalt Christ alone. Read with me to see if you don't think this is still in view in verses 22 to 24 of this chapter. I think these two groups, Apollos and Paul, are here In these verses, and I hadn't noticed this before preparing for this message. It says, the Jews demand signs. Paul did signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. Apollos spoke with the eloquence of wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And I think we means Apollos and I. He's not against Apollos. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, some people are so enamored by oratory, by rhetorical skills and educational evidences, 
And other people are so enamored by signs and wonders. Somebody got healed when Paul laid the, his hands on them. And Paul is saying, go through it. Go through it. Do we preach Christ crucified? Are we crucified? Is Christ alone exalted? That's the test of a TV preacher and a local church pastor. Finally, chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 is the final sixth truth. And I invite you to look at this with me because it confirms that the Paul party and the Apollos party are really the two big troublemakers. Cephas is dropping out. Christ has dropped out as a partisan figure. Let's read these verses, verses 4 to 7 of chapter 3. When one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, you see, only two are mentioned now. Are you not merely men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Slaves, servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned or gave to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. Now, how would you put that into a truth that attacks the foundation of boasting in teachers and severs the church? I would put it like this. True teachers of the gospel do not try to win converts or build a following with flourishes of worldly rhetoric or any other worldly means. Rather, they acknowledge that they are mere pipelines of sovereign grace so that God, the flow, the living flow, gets the glory. Notice this in verse 5 and verse 7. In verse 5, he says, We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord. And then literally, all your versions tend to Go different ways here. Some say opportunities were assigned. Some say tasks were assigned. Literally, it's just as the Lord gave to each. And I'm inclined to think it means gave converts, gave faith. Because as you read on in verse 7, it says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth, who makes to grow. So you see what the point is? The point is... Apollos came a little after Paul. Paul came first. He planted seed. Apollos came later and watered it. And now here are people boasting in the planter and boasting in the waterer. And Paul's pulling his hair out and saying, don't you understand the sovereignty of God? That's the sixth truth. God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Sure, I preached. Balaam's ass preached. God saves sinners and God alone. And therefore, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the main point of these three chapters. It's the main point of the message this morning. Tonight, we're going to ask, all right, if the nature of this disunity is the pride that is expressing itself by aligning itself behind different teachers and boasting in their distinctives and their merits, 
And if you have thoroughly demolished that, Paul, and shown how the pride that is giving rise to that is utterly unwarranted and without foundation in the Christian life, what are you going to put in its place? Should we all agree with each other about everything? Like you said at the beginning, is so sweet or not? That's tonight. Let's stand for prayer. Oh, Lord God, I beg you, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, so deeply to cause these six truths to take root in our hearts that the common sharing of these truths together would make us so much one at Bethlehem that when the world looks on, they would see that Christ crucified is indeed the power and the wisdom of God. Would you pray for that unity with me by singing the worship song, Father, make us one.